Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And previously on Tech Stuff, I talked about the founding of the company Niantic, how it took its name from a ship that ended up being buried under San Francisco, and it went on to launch the phenomenally successful Pokemon Go. I covered a bit of how Niantic developed another game called Ingress before it jumped on Pokemon Go. So today we're going to continue our story. We're going to talk a little bit more about how Pokemon Go works and how it makes money and also what else Niantic has been working on. So let's first talk about how Pokemon in general, not just Pokemon Go, but how Pokemon in general works from a very high level. The Pokemon are fictional critters. They are pocket monsters, if you will, though many of them are far too large to fit inside of a pocket. Players, called trainers, attempt to find and catch the various Pokemon and add them to their collection, or Pokedex. By the way, get used to Poka being used a lot in this episode. Uh, you use Pokeballs to catch Pokemon, and trainers can even evolve Pokemon into more advanced forms. So for example, the Charmander Pokemon will eventually evolve into a form called the Charmeleon, and then further evolve into the Charizard. Each evolution marks an increase in Pokemon power and some changes in their abilities. Trainers pit their Pokemon against other trainers into Pokemon battles, and that means in most Pokemon games, you enter into a turn-based combat sequence. In the standard Pokemon games, it's clear that some trainers are bad guys. They're working to create a sort of criminal organization that leans heavily on these Pokemon critters to do nefarious things, Team Rocket being a prime example. Each Pokemon belongs to a category, or a type, and each type has strengths and weaknesses against some of the other types. And it's kind of like paper, rock, scissors. You know, because paper beats rock, rock beats scissors, scissors beats paper. In Pokemon, however, you don't have three types. You've got 18 different types. Some types have no advantage or disadvantages against each other. Uh, some Pokemon types, like grass types, are weak against many other types. And so knowing which types are effective against others helps a trainer win battles. And just because one Pokemon is naturally weak against another does not necessarily mean defeat is inevitable. There's an RNG element, or random number generator, to this too. So it is possible, but very unlikely, that a Pokemon that's weak against another will still win in a battle if it just happens to get really good random results and the other one gets really bad results. But obviously the odds are against you in that scenario. Oh, and each Pokemon has a few different moves that you can play in this turn-based system. Some moves are meant to reduce your opponent's defenses, some are meant to decrease the potency of their next attack, and some are just meant to inflict damage. When a Pokemon has taken all the damage it can take, in other words, all of its hit points are gone, it faints. There is no dying in Pokemon, which is something of a relief. In most Pokemon games, if your creature faints, you can swap in another Pokemon from your collection and continue the battle. 
But if all of your Pokemon in your in your little group faint, you lose the battle plus some money and you head off to a Pokemon Center where you can have your poor little critters recover before heading back out to do it all over again. Now, there are other aspects to the game as well. Most games allow players to buy various items which can help during Pokemon battles, like it can help restore hit points, for example. And then there's the Pokeball, which is a small sphere that acts both like a a net to catch Pokemon and also a storage space where your little Pokemons live. It captures them and holds them. Wild Pokemon, if you encounter one in the wild within these games, you have a chance to try and capture them and add them to your collection, but they have a chance to escape capture Uh, Battling wild Pokemon with one of your own can weaken the wild ones enough so that when you grab them, they don't have the strength to escape. Charming, right? All right, so in Pokemon Go, some of these elements made it into play early on, but not all of them did. There were some limitations on things like whom you could actually battle. You couldn't go head-to-head against another player, for example. But Pokemon Go also introduced some elements that are not in the standard console games. For one... The types of Pokemon you encounter depend heavily on where in the world you really physically are. Some Pokemon are unique to specific continents, meaning you could wander all over, uh, well, let's say North America, and if you did, you would never see a Mr. Mime, which, frankly, might be a blessing. But that's because Mr. Mime is exclusive to Europe. You would have to travel to Europe to have a chance of finding one in the wild, And also the time of day matters too. You'll see a different distribution of Pokemon monsters in the morning versus the evening, for example. Now for another thing, the act of catching a Pokemon in Pokemon Go involves a gesture control mechanic. So you've got your little Pokeball on your screen, and you can also see your Pokemon that you're trying to capture on your screen. Uh, If you're playing in augmented reality mode, the Pokemon actually appears as an overlay of a camera view of your environment. So you could be holding up your camera. Maybe you're looking at, like, say, a park bench, and you notice that the little Pokemon is apparently standing on top of the park bench. It's cute. Uh, But a lot of folks actually switch this mode off because it does also suck up battery life really quickly. Well, then you use a vertical swipe motion to virtually toss your Pokeball at the Pokemon. Uh, If you first swing the Pokeball around a bit, like you swirled your finger around in a circle, you charge up the Pokeball, which increases your chances of catching the Pokemon. It also makes it a little more challenging to aim the Pokeball before you throw it, which means you might miss wildly. But even if you hit the Pokemon smack dab in its Pokeface, Pokeface, you aren't guaranteed to catch it. Some Pokemon are rare and powerful, and the odds of a successful capture are decreased unless you're using a more powerful version of the Pokeball, which leads us to the next really big element of Pokemon Go. Most importantly for Niantic, Pokemon Go created lots of opportunities for microtransactions. Now, in the world of games, microtransactions have become the big moneymaker for certain types of games. They also can be a real pain point for players. And depending upon the implementation, players could just see it as a small price to, uh, to pay in order to play a game that they really love playing, or they might see it as being really predatory. Now, let's explain the emergence of microtransactions. In the old days, back in like the 80s, Buying a computer game meant you plunked down your hard-earned cheddar and you purchased a copy of Zork 
and you headed on home to play it as much as you liked. You just put that five and a quarter inch floppy disk into your disk drive, loaded it up and started playing and you could play as much as you wanted. You owned that copy of the game and everything associated with that game was on the game's floppy disk. Everything that was that version of Zork was right there forever and ever. The point of purchase marked the one and only transaction involving you and that Zork game. But let's skip ahead. Games get much more sophisticated and complicated. Now you can still buy a full game, but now developers start creating additional material based on that game build, and they offer it as a separate purchase. These could be sequels to a title, uh, they could be side adventures or extra levels for certain games, and typically these expansions would be built upon the same game engine, uh, using the same graphics resources and featuring the same gameplay elements, but with more content. So let's give an example. Let's say you really loved Ultima 7, The Black Gate, a computer RPG from back in the day. Well. You play the game, you love it, and you wish that there was more of it. Then you find out, hey, Origin, the company behind it, has just made an expansion. They've created a game called Ultima 7, The Forge of Virtue, that has more content within that game world. Same graphics, same game engine. You can keep the party going. And if that weren't enough, you could go even further with Ultima 7 Part 2, Serpent Isle, which was really more like an expansion pack. If that still weren't enough, you could also get Ultima 7 Part 2, The Silver Seed, even more uh, content built on that foundation. So this was a way where you could keep players engaged. The players who really loved a title could continue buying content that tied into that title. And when massively multiplayer online role-playing games or MMORPGs became a thing, then we saw this idea expand further. You would have eager players who would soak up all the content of an MMORPG, and then naturally they wanted more. They had just, you know, really explored this whole environment and they wanted to have even more experiences. The way the typical MMORPGs made money, at least back then, was twofold. First, the developer would sell a copy of the game, just like any other computer game. You would, you know, buy a game for like 30, 40, 60 bucks, whatever it might be. But then you also had a monthly subscription fee that would kick in at some point. That was a monthly charge to continue to play the game online, which was the only way the game existed. So in other words, players had to keep paying to play the game. Now, with that kind of revenue model, you obviously need to keep supplying content to your customers or else you're going to lose them. If someone feels like they've done everything there is to do, then they're like, well, why am I going to pay, you know, 10 bucks a month to keep playing this game? So MMORPGs like World of Warcraft would introduce new expansions that would, as the name implies, expand the scope of the game while also typically increasing the maximum character level cap so that players could continue to progress the characters they had already created when they bought the original version and kept them invested in the game. This process would repeat many, many times with lots of expansions for the really successful games like World of Warcraft. But on top of that, these games would eventually promote a different type of transaction, sometimes not on purpose. There became a market for in-game items, stuff like weapons or armor or potions or other things of perceived value within the, within the game. You know, sometimes these were things that legit gave your character extra abilities. Originally, the idea was that 
players would be allowed to trade for this stuff, you know, using in-game transactions between each other. So let's say you and I are both playing this game and I offer you gold that I have acquired within the game and you need some gold. So in exchange, you're offering me a sword of butt kicking or whatever it might be. But before long, people started offering real world money for in-game items or more likely people started soliciting for real-world money in order to sell an in-game item. Initially, the reaction to this from the company side was to try and get a lock on it. Uh, some players would be shelling out money to deck their characters out in stuff that they didn't find themselves, and other players saw it as almost like a pay-to-win kind of scenario, and it created an unbalanced environment. Uh, I'm sure I would feel a lot of resentment if I were playing you know, the game as intended. And then meanwhile, Richie Rich is kidding himself out in magic armor and weapons that he just bought from someone else and never actually bothered to, you know, put in any work to trying to earn them himself. But that experience also illustrated how lucrative it could be to offer in-game items for real-world cash. And we started to see some games begin to experiment with this in different ways. Mobile games do this a lot and in fact tend to build in limiting factors within the game that keep players from progressing unless they pay a small amount to get more playtime or an extra item or an extra life or whatever it might be. And computer and console games began to implement it in the form of loot crates. So these are boxes that contain some in-game you know, asset inside of them. It might be something common, well, which means it wouldn't be of great value to the player. It might be useful, but not particularly valuable. Or it could be something really rare, something that's really sought after. And some games only allow these items to enter the game through loot crates. In other words, you won't be able to find them through regular play unless you happen across a loot crate and you open it up and you luckily get that item. The odds of getting something rare reflect how rare it is. Because this is a video game. Scarcity doesn't really exist, right? The, the number of ultimate powerful swords is limitless, despite the fact that the word ultimate would suggest that you could only have one. No, you could have limitless versions of this. So the supply is completely controlled by the developer. So if, say, you wanted a fancy costume for your character, like a very specific outfit, you might have less than a 1% chance of finding it in any given loot crate situation. And of course, games began to introduce different tiers of loot crates. So a basic loot crate would rarely have anything special in it. Uh, more expensive, higher tier loot crates had a better chance of holding something you wanted, but there was no guarantee. And you were encouraged to buy these loot crates for real money. A lot. Most games allow you to earn loot crates through play, but it's at a very controlled, slow pace. And the goal is to convince players to hand over real-world money to buy more of these loot crates rather than just pouring extra hours, especially if you've just played a game for hours, you finally open up the loot crates you've earned, and you don't get the thing you wanted, and you still have that desire to have that thing. Now let me be clear. There are a lot of games out there that have loot crates, and some of them don't require you to purchase the crates with real-world money. You just earn them within the game by playing the games. 
but a lot of them also do offer up that option to purchase additional loot crates for cash, and the more you spend, the more you get. Most of these games will offer discounts if you buy in larger numbers. So let's say that a single loot crate might set you back a dollar, but if you spend $5, you get seven loot crates. So it's less than a dollar each, right? 10 bucks might get you 15 loot crates. $100 might get you 200 loot crates. You get the idea. Now, here's the brilliant thing from the revenue standpoint. Like I said, there's no real scarcity. In the real world, buying in bulk means that the merchant who's selling the stuff is offloading real merchandise in the process. So if I'm selling oranges and you decide you want to buy 500 oranges from me, I'm likely going to cut you a big deal because there's a real risk I'm not going to be able to sell all of my oranges before they start to go bad, which means I'm going to have waste. I'll make no money from those spoiled oranges. So even though I might charge customers for each individual orange, like, I don't know, 50 cents, if I'm selling them in bulk to you, it's probably going to be closer to like 20 cents each, less than half, because it's still guaranteed money for me. And otherwise I could end up with a lot of waste and very little revenue, right? If I don't think I'm going to sell those 500 oranges, then I'm not going to make any money from them. So of course I'm going to start cutting deals for selling in bulk. However, once I do sell you those 500 oranges, clearly I no longer have those 500 oranges anymore. They don't belong to me. They belong to you. They're gone from my inventory. So I have whatever is left. And maybe I keep selling those for 50 cents a piece, or maybe less if someone else is trying to buy them in bulk. But when it comes to stuff like loot crates, there is no scarcity. The merchant, that is the game, doesn't run out of loot crates. There's no limitation on how many loot crates can be sold. The scarcity of the items inside the loot crates are determined not because there's a physical limit to how many can exist at any given time, but because the percentage of likelihood that they will be generated by any loot crate is just really small. So if a merchant sells 1,000 loot crates to someone, that doesn't mean the merchant now has 1,000 fewer loot crates because they're just digital items. The merchant can sell a limitless number to customers. So the supply and demand mechanics don't really apply here because there's an infinite supply. The merchant can run specials. This weekend, all loot crates are 50% off. And the merchant isn't losing any money in the process because loot crate production is effectively free. I mean, yeah, there are the costs of doing business. There's the cost of running the computers and paying the people who are running the game. Those costs are, exist whether you're doing a, a promotion or not. But the actual generation of loot crates, it's not like that requires extra effort or, or energy. The 50% off weekend isn't really a markdown in the traditional sense. It's an effort to convince people who might not otherwise spend money on in-game stuff to go ahead and do it. And once you convince them once, you might be able to do it again. These microtransactions within games can be incredibly lucrative, and they're not always so micro. There are games that include in-game purchases that can be in the $100 range, which means you'd be spending more money for in-game items than you would typically spend to purchase a AAA title video game, period. Those run in the $60 to $70 range. That's for a full game. So let's just remember that. Like There are $100 in-game purchases, which means you'd be spending more within a game than you would to buy your average game. Now, an important component of this dynamic is the psychological rewards. All of these games, to some extent, depend upon creating a sort of dependency. And I promise 
that we'll be coming back to Pokemon Go in a little bit, but in order to understand revenue models and how Niantic went from a scrappy company with around 40 employees to a multi-billion dollar success, we need to learn about how our ding-dang brains work. Because trust me, game developers are all over it. But first, let's take a quick break. Okay, so I've covered the basics of microtransactions and how they work from an operational side, but we also need to look at why they work. I mean, sure, I might play a game that offers me to the chance to, you know, purchase an item within game or maybe just the chance to find an item. But why would I actually follow through with that? What is compelling me to spend real world money on a game? Well, maybe I just like the game and I want to reward the developers. I have actually done this before. I have a game on my smartphone that was free to download. It was free to install. It's free to play. And I played it for about a year without ever making any in-game purchases. There's no advertising in this game either. And I thought, you know, I've had hours of enjoyment with this game. I enjoy playing it. I should at least fork over some money to the developers. That to me seems fair. So I made a $20 in-game purchase. And every year or so, I do the same because I'm still playing that game and I'm still getting enjoyment out of it. The developers keep adding content to it. So without any other stream of revenue from that game, I feel like, you know, I kind of owe it to pay some money since I'm enjoying the, the fruits of their labor. And I feel that's a, a pretty fair approach. Uh, because that's the way I'm viewing it. That's the perspective I'm taking. But that's not how games, even including the one I'm vaguely referring to, really make lots of cash. They depend upon a different sequence. See, games like these really establish a reinforcement and reward system that fulfills a psychological need we humans typically have. We crave rewards. It feels good to get a reward. Rewards fulfill needs like a sense of autonomy. Like, uh, in other words, yay, I rescued the kingdom, now I've got a pile of gold for doing it. Or uh, it rewards a sense of competence, like, yay, I chopped that wood so well that now I'm even better at chopping wood. So video games set up cycles that present players with tasks and then rewards. Completing tasks means you get the psychologically satisfying result of getting a reward, which in turn encourages you to tackle more tasks. But let's say we tweak this dynamic a little bit. There are a few ways we could do this. We could create a shortcut. So yeah, you can play the game and you can get a reward. Or maybe you just spend some real world money and you get the reward right now. So you get sort of that psychological rush of receiving a reward without all that pesky chore stuff that leads up to it. Your character in the game gets more powerful, or gets a better outfit, or gets more time to spend playing, or opens up a new region, or whatever it might be. Or we could make the tasks more difficult to a point where most players will not be able to complete those tasks without paying for help. Maybe you have a, a game mechanic that gives players five minutes of playtime before there's a cooldown period where they cannot play the game for a given amount of time while they recharge. And then you include a task that, on average, takes seven minutes to complete. Well, now, players who engage with that task have five minutes to try and complete a seven-minute task. As you can imagine, that's not necessarily possible. 
and they will still crave the reward that comes at the end of completing the task. But because they didn't have enough time to actually do that, that craving goes unfulfilled. Now, they could wait to try and recharge and see if they could complete the task in the next session, but that's leaving things unresolved. And a lot of people just really hate that feeling of something being unresolved. They crave having it resolved. And psychologically, we need that reward. So now we've got the option to maybe pay a little bit extra for some more time so that you can actually finish the task. It's not paying to complete the task. It's paying to get the time so you can do it yourself. And then you get the reward. Boom. Microtransaction. Or you create that artificial scarcity where you make something that's really cool, like an awesome outfit. I think of uh, lots of games out there have different skins. Player Unknown's Battlegrounds does it. Overwatch does it. Lots of games have this, right? Where there's just these really nice designed outfits that make you look really cool. Well, they tend to be pretty rare and difficult to get hold of. You can't just buy them outright or else everybody would be wearing them. So instead, you make them an item that can be found in loot crates, but you reduce the percentage of the chance that they will appear to an absurd degree. Completionists or people who just really love that design will chase after that. They crave the reward of having something that most people do not have, or maybe they just really dig the design. And so they'll either pour countless hours into the game trying to earn it, or they'll start buying loot boxes in order to try and find it that way and just increase their odds through you know bulk buying. Now, the commonality here is that you as a game developer are trying to figure out the ways to create a demand for in-game items or effects, and then you exploit that way and creating a cycle that can be repeated specifically with each player so that each player becomes a, uh, a, a, a source of repeated revenue. That reward cycle can become a bit addictive and it can lead some players to becoming irresponsible with their real world cash as they play. Now, I am not saying that microtransactions are totally evil, or at least they're not any more evil than other types of capitalist transactions. It's mostly in how they are incorporated into a game that really matters. If it's a pay-to-win scenario where, you know, if you spend money, you get better items that give you advantages in the games, most people tend to find that to be gross or lame or whatever. If it's purely cosmetic, then I find that most people think it's perfectly cromulent. And if the game seems like it completely hinges on microtransactions, so in other words, there doesn't seem to be much of a game there unless you're paying lots of money over time and it's really just kind of a churning transaction generator, that is not a good look. So how does this all relate back to Pokemon Go? Well, the game also dips into another brilliant cash-making scheme, that of, you know, like fun bucks or in-game currency. It always makes me think of Disney dollars or sometimes gift cards. And it's a way that companies can make a lot of money and not have a lot of cost associated with it. And here's how it works. First, you have to exchange real-world money for in-game currency or in-world currency. So let's use Disney as an example. Disney World and Disneyland for a while allowed you to spend real cash to buy Disney dollars. So these were bills of different denominations, 1, 5, 10, and 50, and they had Disney characters on them. You could use Disney dollars 
to buy stuff in stores at Disney World and Disneyland. But you couldn't, and this was an important part, convert unused Disney dollars back into real-world cash. So you could only use Disney dollars to make transactions at Disney properties. Clearly, you would not be able to go into a non-Disney store somewhere and use Disney dollars because it's not legal currency. It'd be kind of like trying to buy real-world stuff with Monopoly money. And also, people would hold on to Disney dollars as keepsakes in their own right, which meant Disney was effectively selling slips of paper for one, five, ten, or even fifty bucks of real-world money, which is brilliant, right? Well, in-game currency is kind of the same. You spend a certain amount of real money to get a given amount of in-game currency. Then all other purchases within the game are based on the in-game currency. So you gotta buy cash before you can buy, say, a new hat with that cash. And typically, games like Pokemon Go will mark down in-game currency for larger purchases. So a dollar would net you 100 Poke coins. $5 would get you 550 of them. $10 would get you 1,200 coins. And 100 bucks would be 14,500 coins. You would be Poke rich and real world poor. The coins would let you buy stuff like Lures, which, as the name suggests, brings out more of the Pokemon critters as you walk around. So you see more of them in, in, in the amount of time that you're playing. Uh, that would last for a certain amount of in-game time. And uh, you might get better Pokeballs, which have a higher chance of success when you use them against more powerful Pokemon. So meaning you're more likely to catch that Pokemon. It won't get away and you won't lose your chance of collecting it. Or you might use the in-game cash to buy lucky eggs, which allow you to hatch a new Pokemon after you walk a certain number of steps. And potentially you might get a rare one that you otherwise may not have come across while you were walking around. All of these items have a certain number of Pokecoins associated with them, and it helps obfuscate how expensive each of these in-game items are with regard to real-world money which is another big part of using in-game currency. It might cost you a dollar to get 100 Pokecoins, but maybe an item in the game is valued at 300 Pokecoins. Now that means that it would set you back three real-world dollars to buy enough of the Pokecoins if you were just buying them in the $1 increments. However, as you go through, it starts to become more difficult to associate the in-game stuff with the real-world price you're paying, particularly if you're spending more money so that you get extra Poke coins with your purchase. Now, it might sound like I'm saying Niantic is trying to trick players by creating a reward system that triggers a desire in players to make purchases and then increases their chances of getting rewards, coupled with using in-game currency to put some distance between an in-game item's real-world cost, or price tag, and the player's awareness of that. And I guess that is one way to look at it. However, this is also a very common approach with smartphone games in particular. Heck, the one I alluded to earlier uses a very similar process. And in fact, it has multiple in-game currencies. Pokemon Go at least keeps itself to the one means of in-game exchange for the store. Some games might have four or five different methods, which I would argue makes them even more guilty of fleecing players. Like I said, the game I play does this, which yeah, can sometimes feel a little gross or at least exploitative. But whatever you think about the revenue model of tr microtransactions, whether you think it's great or it's not, you have to admit, it works. In its first month, Pokemon Go 
generated $207 million in revenue, which at the time was the most money a mobile game had made within a month of launch. And that's made all the more remarkable when you consider that Niantic rolled out the game gradually across different regions. It was not available globally right away. The game launched in July 2016, and by September of that year, Niantic saw more than 500 million downloads. By July 2017, one year after launch, it had been downloaded 750 million times. Most of the downloads were on Android devices. There was a nearly 70-30 split between Android and iOS, which I actually find pretty interesting. Generally speaking, the trend is that you see more in-app purchases on apps that are running on iOS. It just seems like Apple users tend to be more um, inclined to make in-app purchases. So while Android phones vastly outnumber iOS devices throughout the world, I mean, there's just way more Android devices than there are iOS devices. On the flip side, Apple users tend to spend more money on apps and in apps than Android users do. So I just found it really interesting that here we saw a 70-30 split between Android and iOS in the devices running Pokemon Go, and yet there's this incredible amount of in-game purchases going on, which you wouldn't expect given that split. Well, adoption dropped off fairly sharply after Pokemon first debuted, and some players dropped off the game entirely over time, including myself, but Pokemon Go still proved to be incredibly profitable. There was a dip in spending in 2017. Players were spending less on average in 2017, but after that, Niantic saw spending increase year over year. In 2019, Pokemon Go brought in $894 million in revenue, a truly staggering amount. But learning that bit didn't surprise me nearly as much as what happened in 2020. So of course, we had the pandemic hit in 2020, and with much of the world going into lockdown and isolation by you know March or April of 2020, it meant that I would think Pokemon Go would have suffered. This is a game that encourages players to go outside and walk around in the real world in order to encounter Pokemon within the game and then catch them. You would think that you would have an enormous hit on revenue when people weren't leaving their houses. You, I was expecting to see a really big dip. How could a game so reliant on physical location be a success in a year when most people weren't actually going anywhere? Well, I was 100% wrong because by November of 2020, 10 months into the year, not even a full year, Niantic posted $1 billion in revenue from Pokemon Go. A billion dollars from in-app purchases in a mobile game. Upon further exploration, I started to get an understanding of what was going on. People were spending more time on their phones in lockdown, so they were downloading more entertainment, like games, to mobile devices. And Niantic, very, very smartly, implemented numerous features to let players have virtual experiences and play the game without actually having to leave the safety of their homes. One of the big changes was in how an in-game item called Incense works. And essentially, Incense attracts Pokemon to your location. Really, it just means that Pokemon spawn at wherever you are for a set amount of time, like half an hour. 
And for those 30 minutes, you're going to see way more Pokemon spawn around you than you normally would. And it gives you a chance to collect Pokemon without having to wander physically around your region. Niantic boosted the effects of incense during lockdown. They also boosted the effects of other in-game items, which allowed players to experience the game from home. As long as they had those items, that is. And how did you get those items? Mostly you did it by buying Pokecoins and then using the Pokecoins to purchase the items you wanted in the in-game store, of course. Now, I've got a lot more to say about Niantic, but first, let's take another quick break. Over the course of its existence so far, Pokemon Go has generated more than $4 billion in revenue. The US leads the way in terms of spending on the game, and Japan is not that far behind. Upon initial release, the amount of gameplay in Pokemon Go was fairly limited. You could capture Pokemon, you could evolve them over time using an in-game resource called Stardust, more on that in a second. You could attempt to take over gems so that your faction could control them. You know, there are three factions or teams in Pokemon Go. Uh, but you couldn't battle head-to-head -head with other players, nor could you trade Pokemon. In 2018, Niantic finally introduced trading, but it was not as simple as swapping one Pokemon for another. To trade, you had to meet some other criteria first. Uh, both players that would enter into a trade would first have to become friends with each other, which involves sending and accepting friend requests using a, a unique identifier to link the two accounts together as friends, and that establishes a connection. Both friends would need to be within 100 meters of each other in real life before making a trade, at least before the pandemic they had to do that. And you needed a certain amount of Stardust to power that trade. Like I said, Stardust is an in-game element in Pokemon Go that typically you use to level up captured Pokemon. So let's say I caught a Charmander, and to power up my Charmander and evolve it up to a Charmeleon, and then ultimately up to a, a Charizard, I need to collect enough Stardust to power that transformation. And um, you collect Stardust through playing the game. But trading, likewise, requires a certain amount of Stardust to allow you to trade a Pokemon to another player. The more rare the Pokemon, the more Stardust is actually needed to make a trade happen. Now, complicating this is that friendship isn't just a binary element in Pokemon. It's not either you're my friend or you're not. Friendship has tiers to it, meaning that over time, you can boost your friendship levels. Literally over time, the longer you are friends with somebody, the higher your friendship value is. It's kind of like going from an acquaintance to a friend to BFF to... Seriously, can you help me hide this body? I might be revealing too much about how I rank my friends. Anyway, with higher friendship levels, the Stardust cost for trading starts to come down. So the same trade with one person who's just like an acquaintance level is going to cost you more Stardust than that exact same trade with your BFF. It'll be less Stardust. So if you're trading with a really good friend, you aren't spending quite as much Stardust to make it happen. In addition, sometimes during play, you might encounter a gift item out in the wild. And gift items are meant to be given to your friends. So if I find a gift item, I would not be able to open it for myself. I could, however, send it on to one of my friends who also plays the game, and they would not only receive this gift, 
they would then be able to open it and there would be some useful items in there that they could then put to use within the game themselves. The gameplay mechanics of trading are a bit convoluted, but they also help avoid the issues you would have if there were kind of a no holds barred approach. In that case, players could end up spoofing multiple accounts and then just trading back and forth with themselves in order to essentially cheat their way toward dominance. And heck, with that reward cycle built into games, you could see why people would actually do this. They're chasing that high of a perceived achievement, a reward. Doesn't matter if they had to take shortcuts to get there. Now I'm getting toward the end of this episode, so I need to switch gears for a minute and talk about Niantic's other game they've launched since Pokemon Go. So there's Ingress, which is still going today. That was their first big public game. There's Pokemon Go, and then there's another huge IP that partnered with Niantic to create an augmented reality mobile game that everyone at the time was thinking could be even bigger than Pokemon Go, and that would be Harry Potter. Uh, The game that Niantic created is called Harry Potter Wizards Unite. The world first learned about this partnership back in November 2017, just a little more than a year after Pokemon Go had launched. According to the press release, Niantic promised a game in which, quote, players will learn spells, explore their real-world neighborhoods and cities to discover and fight legendary beasts and team up with others to take down powerful enemies, end quote. From the press release, it sounded like this would be, in many ways, very similar to Pokemon Go, but with a Harry Potter kind of overlay. In Pokemon Go, players choose one of three teams to join. They're either Team Valor, Team Instinct, or Team Mystic. There's no option to join Team Rocket, and yes, I have written letters about it. These are the teams that compete to control sites like gyms, which are tied to points of interest in the real world, and Harry Potter would change that up so that instead of Team Valor and Team Instinct and Team Mystic, you would choose one of the four houses in Hogwarts. So, of course, Slytherin, which we all know is the best house, uh, Ravenclaw, Gryffindor, or Hufflepuff. When the game finally launched in 2019, two years later, this was essentially confirmed. And in addition, players of the game can choose a profession. The three professions are uh, Magizoologist, Auror, or Professor. Uh, They can also select their own wands, which frankly is against canon because we all know the wand chooses you. But then the wands don't have any real effect on gameplay at all. They're purely cosmetic, so it's not like it actually matters beyond aesthetics. Like Pokemon Go, the intended gameplay for Harry Potter Wizards Unite is to walk around your real environment and encounter confounded creatures or items. You are then to cast spells to reverse this confounding curse on these things, and casting spells involves tracing a pattern shown on your screen, dependent upon whichever spell you're casting, and different ones have different powers. Uh, It's kind of like Pokemon Go. Uh, You can actually have this set to AR mode so that you get a digital overlay of critters that appear to be in your real-world environment, or you can just turn that off, save your battery life, and just play on the screen. Tracing the pattern correctly increases your chances of unconfounding things, or at least that's what's supposed to do. In my experience, the gesture detection is a little bit wonky, and sometimes I'm told that I didn't do a very good job when I am sure I nailed that gesture. And other times, I'm like, ooh, I really I really messed that one up and yet get a perfect result. So there's a lack of consistency there. Now, granted, I have not played this game 
in a long, long time. So it may be that it has improved over time, but when it first launched, I was having real issues. The game has a lot of other gameplay features in it, many of which are clever and fun when you can, you know, go outside without a care in the world. So for example, they have port keys in this game and you can find a, a port key. Essentially, it's like a chest and you can open it with a, a one of your keys and that creates a portal uh, that appears in your view. So you can actually hold your phone up and you see that there's a, a portal in front of you to go through the portal. You actually do have to take steps and walk through the thing, which is why I recommend that you do this somewhere really safe, like not next to a busy road where the portal would have you walk into traffic. Anyway, once you go through the portal, you collect in-game stuff that gives you special items that you can use within the gameplay. Uh, like Pokemon Go, you can also purchase things within the game to give you boosts and unlock items much more quickly. The launch of Wizards Unite was a far cry from what Niantic saw with Pokemon Go. With Pokemon, Niantic generated more than $200 million in revenue in that launch month. Harry Potter was closer to $12 million. Now, that's not chump change. Don't get me wrong. I would love $12 million. But it wasn't a Grand Slam home run this, the way that Pokemon Go was. You know, everyone was thinking Harry Potter is such a recognizable intellectual property. For sure, this game is going to be just a license to print money. Um, so while the Harry Potter franchise is huge and, and is bigger than Pokemon, it has a rabid fan base as well, but the game just didn't see as much adoption early on, whether that was because of a failure in marketing or just a lack of interest among Harry Potter fans. I can't say maybe Pokemon fans were already used to interacting with Pokemon within the context of the game world and the game like like revenue structure. So the transition to playing Pokemon, but in the real world had a greater appeal for those folks. But whatever the reason, Harry Potter has not paid off the same way Pokemon has. Niantic, however, continues to develop games, you know, in between cashing enormous checks from Pokemon Go. Next up is a game that's based around the popular board game Settlers of Catan, which, you know, I've never actually played I think that means I have to hand over my geek card. I know we've got some Catan players in our office. I think Tyler and Matt might play it, but I have never sat down to a session. I only have a vague idea of how the game works. Anyway, Niantic announced it was working on this Catan-related title back in November 2019, but we haven't yet seen the game come out. Presumably, 2020 really threw a wrench in the works because Niantic had to dedicate a lot of resources toward optimizing Pokemon Go and Harry Potter in order to have the play-at-home approach. Very, very recently, just back in March of this year, this year being 2021 in case you're listening to this from the future, Niantic announced it was making a game in the Pikmin franchise. This game will come out of the Tokyo based branch of Niantic, which was first set up back in 2018. But I think it's safe to say that the bread and butter of Niantic continues to be Pokemon Go. While the game saw a lot of players migrate away, particularly before stuff like trading was introduced, Niantic has incorporated a lot of in-game and real-world incentives to bring people on board and to keep existing players engaged. Uh, that includes introducing more Pokemon. Uh, there are hundreds of Pokemon and it's kind of like controlled releases. So the initial Pokemon that were 
available in Pokemon Go were all like first edition Pokemon, but lots of them have been introduced over subsequent games, and Pokemon Go has capitalized on that. Uh, they also have held really large events, which used to be, you know, physical. It used to bring people together in the same physical location. These days, they run more toward the virtual. However, some people have started using Pokemon recently as, you know, a, an excuse to get out in the world again as vaccination numbers are on the rise. And of course, uh, it also has included finding incentives to encourage players to purchase those dang Poke coins. Now, I would say that the augmented reality nature of these games is a fairly light touch, particularly in the pandemic. The game world does correlate in some measure to the real world. I mean, you can only encounter certain things within the Niantic games based on where you are physically on Earth. You can't find Mr. Mime in the USA. You can't find Taurus in Asia, unless you're trying to cheat the system through spoofing your location. But I think most folks turn off the AR view of gameplay to conserve battery life. So that augmented reality part of the game is really more about just wandering around in an effort to encounter more game elements. But you aren't experiencing the game as if it's overlaid on top of the reality you exist within. So it's kind of a baby step in AR. But the success of Pokemon Go indicates that there just might be something to augmented reality games. Clearly, the best approach is going to require the right IP, the right gameplay mechanics, the right technology to create the AR experience, and the right integration of digital elements with the real world. And that is a secret sauce that's really hard to achieve. I mean, even if we just look at Niantic, they've really only hit the jackpot once. And even Harry Potter, which seemed like a guaranteed success story and came after Pokemon Go did, just hasn't made a huge splash compared to Pokemon. So it might be a while before we see another real juggernaut in the space. Oh, a Marvel augmented reality game. Now I'd be so into that. But that wraps up our episodes about Niantic. The company, as I said, is still going like gangbusters, still developing games, and still making an enormous amount of revenue from Pokemon Go. So we're likely to see them be a big player for some time now. Um, hopefully they'll continue to innovate. I would hate to see it be a company that just relies solely upon Pokemon Go. But as we've seen, repeating success is never a guarantee. I hope you enjoyed these episodes. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.